Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. There is something extra special and, okay, a little extra intimidating about interviewing an expert interviewer. And that's exactly who Abigail Pogrebin is. Abby is the author of three books, including the most recent, My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew, which was a finalist for a National Jewish Book Award. She and I sat down thanks to a wonderful connection that Rabbi Adam Kligfeld made between the two of us. He was a featured interviewee by her recently during the pandemic. And Abby and I talked about what it was like for her adult kids to come home during this pandemic and for her life to slam to a halt for her to hit a welcome brick wall. Stay tuned for this amazing, fascinating, in-depth conversation. As you know, I'm I'm having these conversations with people with lots of hats on you and I, we have our professional Jewish ish hats and we have these personal lives that we lead. And I'm trying to delve into one, always touching on the other. I'd love to go into a time machine a little bit with you to start and uh, go back a year really is almost exactly a year as we're in a dar now. It's hard to believe. And um, paint a picture for me. What what were you doing a year ago? You, the the Jewish you, you, the family you, you, uh, were you even immediate past president you yet of a synagogue you? Um, what was past Abby doing before you knew that this was all going to happen? Well, I would say past Abby a year ago, which is, it's just mind boggling. Um was a pretty stressed out Abby, probably as stressed as I've been in my adult life because, um, and you probably can tell from, from knowing me a little bit that I, I am predisposed to stress as a, as a neurotic New Yorker. Um, but I, I was, I had taken on a job that I never thought I would say yes to, which was a political one. Um, I'm a journalist and it's obviously a leap to decide to be partisan, outwardly, publicly partisan, but I was very, I would say, kind of galvanized by the last four years. And um, some of you, some of your listeners may remember that November 2019, there were polls basically saying that Joe Biden couldn't win. This was all pre-pandemic. And so when I was approached uh, to be um, director of Jewish outreach for Michael Bloomberg, um, at that time, I sort of felt like, you know, a little bit of if not now, when, like, that if I could maybe do something, if this person might actually chart a course um, that was probably a more moderate one than than was, you know, at that time, it felt like the moderate voice was going to be the only one that could possibly prevail. Um, and so I I said yes without having ever worked on a campaign before, which was maybe Meshugana, <laughs> but bizarrely meaningful, even though, as, as everyone knows, that campaign actually did not, uh, did not have an auspicious ending. It was very... It was powerful to be out in the Jewish world across the country before we had to stop traveling, going to all of these places and talking, frankly, to fellow Jews and saying, what matters to you? What is missing? We had seen Jewish community was as splintered as the country. 
in so many ways that I think some of, you know, whatever your politics, we all had to acknowledge right or left that we were as divided a people as we've ever been, I think. And I was just feeling like that was a Shonda, like we were too small people to be this splintered. Um, and that's what I hoped with with plenty of humility. And believe me, I, I, I was consumed with humility, knowing that I had never done it before and might not make a dent. I felt like if so, since since I was asked um, and because I know a lot of Jews, having traveled as much as I have and gone to been lucky enough to visit so many synagogues, JCCs and Federation communities, I, I kind of knew who to call and, and how to at least begin to, to talk to people and see what they were feeling and what mattered to them and, and to relate it to the campaign. So it's a long way of saying I was traveling a lot. I was completely, you know, on spilkus, not knowing if I was doing a good job. And then, you know, we obviously didn't do so well in the debates. And next thing you knew, there was a pandemic and everything shut down. Super Tuesday and 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 everything stopped. Like it, it literally went from like a, a locomotive um, to a brick wall. And in a, in a funny way, that was a very welcome brick wall for me. I think both Jewishly and personally, just because even as energizing and challenging, challenging as the campaign was. And I met people, honestly, I hope to know the rest of my life. I mean, it was as diverse a team as I've been able to work with ever in my life. Um, you know, when you're in the Jewish world, you often don't meet people from all over, um, of all different, you know, demographics and race and gender identification. This was like being thrown into the melting pot. That was a blessing. But it was a lot and I wasn't really breathing and I, I didn't know if it was ever going to let up. And suddenly it all was like, you know, talk about Shabbat. It was like Shabbat on steroids. It's just we, everything halted and it almost screeched to a halt. And so it's a long answer to say that it gave me a breath I didn't think I was going to have. And, and that's, and, and in a, in a funny way, it was its own, not funny, kind of uh, poignant. It, it felt in a way like the powers above were saying, you need to slow down a little bit. Um, even as important as this work has been, uh, this, this is actually a moment that's going to make you revisit everything you've been doing and what matters and, um, and who you haven't been seeing in a long time because of this work. So, uh, I had missed being a reporter. I had missed being the asker of questions instead of the telling of, of, of someone else's story. And, um, and I'd missed my family. That phrase that you used, you, you said a welcome brick wall. And I'm thinking about this idea that people said to me um, when I was anticipating my first maternity leave. I've been uh, on maternity leave twice. And I remember people saying, uh, it's not vacation, you know, but I think welcome brick wall would have actually described it very well because I do run truly 24 seven in the work that I do. And it was a welcome brick wall in that it, it slammed me to halt and everything that I was running, running, running to do and made me reset in a lot of things. Has it ever, have you ever experienced a brick wall like this in your life before? Or is this a brand new feeling? You know, never had when I was a producer for 60 minutes, it, there was a sense of running all the time. Um, and, and when I had my first child, actually, it was, it was a reckoning. I, I think I was on a tarmac, like flying to, I can't remember, Estonia or something. And for a story and just thinking, you know, I love this work, but it's not where I want to be anymore. And it, it wasn't so much a lack of ambition as, as more just, you know, you suddenly just have a different sense 
of where balance is and where your place is. Um, and so I switched to print journalism, actually, right, you know, after after working in 60 Minutes, just knowing that that wasn't going to be a life that was tenable for me. Um, and I'm, I think I am very comfortable in the being, as you are doing, being the person asking the questions and drawing out other people's yeah. stories. And, and I ended up, um, as you know, really in, in kind of Jewish investigation, both personally and journalistically. And, and it's funny where things send you because it never was my plan, but it was suddenly the, the, the area that animated me the most in my life and, animated me as I was becoming a Jewish parent, not having necessarily decided what that was going to look like um, back in the 90s, because I'm old. And so just the confluence of, of, of those events sort of took me, you know, in a place that, that hasn't really ended, but never was there an, a wall in, in a way. I was never as stressed or as forced to stop. Um, and, and interesting enough, when I, when I wrote my most recent book, My Jewish Year, where I took a deep dive, both journalistically and personally, into every um, every milestone on the Jewish calendar. And uh, as you know, it's like a clown car. Once you open it up, there are, the holidays keep coming. It was interesting to me how almost to a holiday, and you know this so well, our tradition slows us down. Our tradition, it was, it was so kind of um, powerful and... And, and redundant in the best sense that that in a way our tradition keeps saying you can't just rush through this. You actually have to take a moment and look at what's happening, taste what you're eating, look at who's with you, look at who matters, look at how lucky you are. I mean, almost again to to a celebration or a moment of mourning that was constantly enforced, and that kind of Jewish slowing, which is a brick wall, sounds very negative. It, it was. It was a blessing I had missed in my life of being forced to stop. You know, you, you said that you missed your family. That was one of the things that you said that you missed and you and you stopped to notice. And you had been an empty nester, right, be- before this uh, for a few years. And that changed, right, when this pandemic began. What yeah, was that like? <laughs> <laughs> um, we have two kids in their 20s. And, you know, I've actually heard this so many times. And, and there is the kind of, um, the hesitancy to say it was all blessing because there was so much suffering at the same time. And, yeah. and that was, that was not just painful. It was hard to, to square the feeling of being fortunate to be back with my kids at a time when people were losing, you know, the people they loved the most. That was, you know, I'm sure we can talk about just acute, acute every day. And because I'm, I'm a news junkie, I was really taking that deep dive of, loss and illness and panic and suffocation and all, you know, just, and the first responders and the people who had to be brave, whether they were brave or not. I mean, that was just such a split screen to having my kids home, Ben and Molly, for the first time, you know, we had not been at the same dinner table regularly in so many years and the preciousness of it, of, you know, suddenly cooking together and setting the table and having these conversations we hadn't had the time to have without people running off in different directions to their activities or back to their friends or schools or, um, and then, and then also just, you know, um, navigating this uncertainty and the fear, the, the complete newness of this scourge of this plague together, um, you know, I, I just felt so relieved that we were close. I felt physically close. 
And, you know, I have, I, I mean, everyone says their kids are rare, but our kids actually enjoy being with us. <laughs> and so they seemed, even though, of course, they missed their lives and their friends, they, they seemed also to, there was a sweetness that I think we were all feeling about being back together. And yes, we had the puzzle phase you've heard about or know about when everybody was doing puzzles. And we had the bananagrams phase, which was very competitive. And we had the baking phase. I mean, you know, that's one thing I've held on to is my my daughter kind of started us on the weekly challah. And we, after trying and failing with many recipes, a challah, I think, is much harder uh, to get right than to get wrong. We finally hit on Joan Nathan's um, My Favorite Hala, which is in the Times. It's also on other places. But she had a fail-safe recipe. And so every Friday, we knew finally that the hala was going to be good. And we had it hot. And we all looked forward to it. And I'll be honest, they're in their 20s. So we shared some wine um, on, on probably too regular basis. But it just, it was like, and then obviously post-George Floyd, there were such crucial conversations to be having all of us in the world, in our country, but also as our family um, with the ra- racial reckoning that was going on. So it was plenty to talk about and it just, it felt very precious to be back together. Yeah, it sounds like two things going on at once for you. It sounds like both a preciousness of coming back together, but it also sounds like meeting your children as adults for the first time, which is something I look forward to in, uh, I can't do the math, but it's going to take me a long time to get to that phase. I'm a little jealous. That wine, that wine sharing sounds great. Uh, but there, there is something unique and precious about the kind of conversations you can have for the first time at that level, it sounds like. No, it's really true. And, and you, you also get pushed by your kids in a different way when they're older. I mean, you know, I, I would say not disrespectfully, but, but, a sense that their opinions now have been shaped away from you. And now they're coming back to that same dinner table, um, you know, having evolved and maybe taking a different um, iteration than you remember. Um, So it was challenging also to have some of those conversations and even just to be side by side, you know, cleaning the kitchen or realizing you still have lessons to teach your 23 year old son. As I did with Ben, I, I made quite a thing of how to sponge correctly. I said, I cannot send you into the world without really knowing how to clean a kitchen. And he, he says he prides himself now on, on, on leaving a, a, a kitchen as clean as his as neurotic mother would want it. Um, but just doing those, those mundane things side by side, um, just, you know, precious time. When you're having these conversations with your kids and you're kind of checking yourself and thinking about these these deep considerations and the late night bananagrams and puzzling. Is that when it came to you that you wanted to have the deeper conversations with other folks out there in the world and start talking about, I don't know, God. Cause I think that like, is, did you go straight to the God? You, this, this... I know, that's such an obvious leap, right? It's such right. Obvious... No, I mean, I think, it had all often, you know, after I finished my book about the holidays, um, you know, when I was on a book tour for that book, and again, you know, privileged enough to talk to so many communities about, you know, our, the architecture, I would say, of our Jewish lives, which which is the calendar. So many of them pushed me, as Jews will, and said, you know, where where is God through your book? You know, it's sort of, it feels like the divine is getting short tripped. And you know, what guided me very much in that book was, you know, I interviewed over 60 rabbis and scholars about 
you know, what are the origins of these holidays? Why do they endure? You know, as you know, many are much more recent than people realize. They're not all these ancient rites. Um, and wanting to understand really why they are still relevant and resonant today. Like, why does Shemini Yetzirah have any reverberation for our lives in 2014, 15, when I was doing this? Um, so I was having those conversations, but, you know, God sometimes wasn't in the answers so much as, as to why we have four cups of wine or why we stay up all night on Shavuot. Um, obviously God was in the story, but not so much the spirituality. And so it was, it was something that, that stuck with me, but I was very intimidated by, to be honest, as I think every, every Jew or every person should be. I didn't feel in a way entitled or equipped, um, or authoritative enough, uh, schooled enough, scholarly enough to even take on the investigation. And it was really, it was really the rabbis in my life who said, that's ridiculous. Like we're, you, you're entitled to the questions. You're entitled to the inquiry. Um, and then it was kind of, you know, the pandemic hits. And I just felt like all these questions that I had that I almost didn't have the courage to admit I had were laid bare. You know, how much is God controlling? Is God punishing us? Is God good? Is there some kind of divine plan that, that is beyond us and that we're only kind of not pawns in, that sounds more passive, but that we have no agency in? I mean, these questions, suddenly you have this plague and it's very hard to imagine that there isn't some force, whatever you call it, at work. And then the response, the response felt so divine of people stepping up and helping each other and risking their lives for each other. And, you know, let's set aside the leadership during that time, which we can parse another time. But just really seeing, you know, what humanity people are capable of and having heard so many times from my teachers you know, that God is in relationship, that God is in the showing up, that you you see God in um, the places where people uh, hold each other, carry each other. That was just overwhelming to me. And it was just felt in a way like something was was crying out for, for the inquiry now. Um, and so I approached the editor of The Forward, Jody Rodoran, who some people know uh, used to be at The New York Times. And I said, you know, I have this crazy idea and I'd love to explore it in some way. And and to her credit, she was very open to it, knowing that it was going to be it was going to be hard for a million reasons, which, you know, we can we can talk about. I mean, it, God is already very well trod territory. And also it's, you know, it's extremely complex theology. You know, it'd be hard in eleven hundred words, whatever each one of these pieces was going um, to be to capture what what one of these rabbis or scholars, or I, I did interview a cantor who was wonderful, like to, to try to really get at what, what is God for them. And, but, but those were conversations I was frankly dying to have because I knew I couldn't unpack any of this by myself. I didn't even want to try. And I have found in all of my reporting that the teachers are everything that all, what all of you do and the work that you're immersed in we need you and we can't do it alone. And opening a book or the Torah or Talmud or any commentary or any, frank, frankly, of our Torah on the page is not the same as conversation. So those were the conversations I started having. I think about the legacy that you have of asking questions from 60 Minutes to the books that you've written to the stars who you've interviewed and writing Stars of David and all these stories that you've told as you talk about the pandemic, the shape that that 
the story is taking for me is that as a journalist, what you wish you could have done is to interview God, as silly as it sounds, about this pandemic. But you can't go to that primary source. I mean, Jews do ask God the questions directly. We actually do that in our liturgy all the time. We ask God and use second person language all the time, and it makes it into our liturgy. That's how we pray. And I, I hope that people, I we tell people all the time, go ahead and talk to God and ask God directly, but it makes for a terrible interview. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so these are your secondary sources. Um, it's a way of getting at God. Amazing. Uh, no one has said that ever. And it's so true. I had all these questions and I think part of it was feeling the fragility of life in a way that, again, you know, our tradition teaches, I mean, but never having felt it as profoundly and frighteningly and shakingly as I did. And just wanting to understand what's going on here. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, is there a plan here? Is there a purpose here? Is there some sense of telling us something, you know, I mean, I know that it's way too simplistic to talk about punishment. That's not what I mean, but was there some lesson that we were supposed to be paying attention to? Sure. And, and I think that one of the things that people who choose Judaism as a path discover that they love about Judaism and Jews who, who are born into Judaism discover is still lovable about Judaism is that we're permitted to go and ask 18 different rabbis and scholars. That's, that's okay. And there are limits to that. We're not supposed to go out, I guess, halakhically and ask for different answers on <laughs> one particular question, but we don't need to get into the nitty gritty of that. In general, when you have a question about God, it's beautiful to go out and seek those different sources. So this, this series, the Still Small Voice series is, is a way of getting at that wonderful aspect of Judaism that permits us to ask. Yes. And I think that, I mean, I, I am sort of the, I think in many ways, the every congregant or the every lay person noticing that God is often a hard vocabulary for a lot of Jews. It just, we just don't, we're not used to it. We don't feel entitled to it. And it often feels somewhat exposing, vulnerable, um, embarrassing to even talk about this stuff. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that many of us are sort of content with putting the God conversation in a very private place. And, and I don't criticize anyone for doing it. I did it myself, but I just feel like, I mean, as you know, we were about to head into Passover. The, the metaphors couldn't have been screaming loud, more loudly, um, about to go through the plagues and we were living through one, um, you know, I was asked uh, very kindly to be part of a lot of these Zoom events that were happening, you know, in addition to planning my own family Seder, because I'm the one who leads it. And we wanted to figure out how to do it and still have the whole gang there. So it was 40 people on Zoom and trying to figure out how to make that intimate, to, how to make everyone be able to participate when you have all of these boxes. And as you know, you can't sing in unison. It's a total mess on Zoom. And we were still very new to all the, the Zoom world um, in April when, when Passover was last year. It's, it's sooner now. Um, but just sitting there with the Haggadah and trying to figure out, like, how is everyone going to feel like we're at the table together? And and what, in a sense, and, and we also could have so easily just said, oh, this is too hard. This is too complicated. We're just going to do it wherever we are. Um, you know, the challenges of this felt, it felt to me like 
like God was in these decisions in a way um, that was very powerful to me. And mm-hmm. saying, you know, obviously it's too, the, the analogy is, is too grand, but I was taught post 70 CE that we had to get away from the temple. We had to reinvent ourselves. Right. And we suddenly had to be a portable tradition and we had to be able to have it be lived and interpreted wherever we were. We couldn't, we didn't have a locus anymore of Judaism with the temple destroyed. And, and I felt that way here of like, suddenly we don't have our synagogues. I don't have my central synagogue, you know, routine of showing up on Friday nights. I don't have my community. I don't have my family at the, you know, my chaotic, tumulty, um, extended relatives of 40 sitting at our table and worrying about, um, you know, how much matzo ball soup is going to spill on the carpet, how much matzo is going to get driven into the, into the walls. You know, it, it just, all of it had to be new. And, and I, I kept hearing permission, like whatever it is, if you have a Snickers bar, as long as you, you know, do something and, you know, just again, it just felt to me like this is very, uh, kind of brass tacks of what, where, where is God now as we figure this out, figure out a new blueprint, not knowing what the end is going to be. Hmm. You know, at the start of our conversation, when we started talking about that, uh, that brick wall, that welcome brick wall that you, that you hit, it was the welcome brick wall for all of your, your workload that you had taken on and the Bloomberg campaign and all that. But now we're, we're talking about that other wall that you also hit, which was the sudden stop to that whole other part of your life, which was this huge community and spiritual life. You didn't have what you were just saying. You, you no longer had this huge central synagogue. And that is a looming place and a looming presence. And Rabbi Buckdahl uh, is, is an extraordinary figure. And I imagine a partner to you in your time as, as president um, of that place. What did it feel like? A loss or, or something else? What was it to, to suddenly not have that place? I mean, a huge loss, a huge loss. I think um, I'm someone who found a synagogue home late in my life. Um, it was 2006 when I joined Central. And even though I had been raised going to synagogues intermittent, not intermittently going, but going to different ones, I never really belonged to one. I never felt like I was known by the clergy or knew them. Um, I didn't really know the congregants other other than by accident because of, I know people on the Upper West Side. It wasn't like I had a synagogue family. And Central gave me one in a way that was just beyond, I say beyond my dreams. I'd never dreamed it. I'd never known what I was missing. It really was one of those, I, I described it in one of my Yom Kippur appeals as lo- love at first sound. You know, I just, I went to a bat mitzvah and I knew it was where I wanted to be. And um and that isn't really like me so much. And it isn't, and I haven't sort of recognized myself ever since. Um, the fact that a, an institution became so crucial in my life, that it helped my family in the way that it has, um, that I feel that I've learned as much as I have. And, and particularly this gang, like you suddenly have this gang you didn't know you'd have. And, and there is something just about the ritual, as you know so well, of showing up on six o'clock every Friday and knowing you're going to be quiet and you're going to turn your phone off and you're going to be surrounded by hundreds of people um, that you haven't seen in a week. Mm -hmm. Um, And whatever you're holding and whatever 
sadness there is because it isn't always um, buoyant. It just had a kind of space and permission and breath that I, you know, had never had before in my life. And so it's become a very cherished thing. In addition to the other times I'm there for the meetings and the board meetings and the, you know, the endless task forces and committees that I've come to cherish so much, but that have bring me into the building for other reasons, including the holidays, other simchas, um, and, you know, sadly funerals. But, but it's just my, it's a place. It's like become a, such an important place and, um, and the people in it. And suddenly again, hard stop. It was over. Um, and, you know, central, as you know, I was listening to your conversation with, uh, Yehuda Kurtzer, who's a friend and he described central, I think a little over, you know, a little bit hyperbolically. <laughs> I have to, I have to argue with him about that later. Just like that we're so well resourced and we were already online. So we had a half a million people listening. It is true. We are lucky. We've been doing this, you know, pre pandemic for 20 years, we've been live streaming. So there was already that community and that, ha- you know, the habitual people were used to it, finding central online. But I also think, you know, it's not just bells and whistles. It's not just great technology. It's, it's, it's being nimble and knowing how to still reach people through the screen. And I think I don't take any credit for that. That, that was our clergy and staff figuring out what do we need to do now to respond. And it was extremely powerful to watch. And it still was appointment Judaism for me on Friday nights, but it just was not the same. And, you know, for those who can't text, and I know uh, that, that most conservative and Orthodox Jews can't use technology, but being able to text while that service begins and to see the flood of texts around Facebook Live, Shabbat Shalom, from wherever people are all over the place, you, you know, it, it was as close to seeing your family as I could get. Do you think you can still define it as community, as being in community? Hmm. Great question. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. It's it's not the same. I feel like the community that I feel is residual, holding on the tether that I think is not broken. But if it was five more years of this, I'm not sure it would, could withstand it. Not, not that the friendships would disappear, but the the ease of being together and the familiarity and the kind of picking up where we left offness of it all. I'm not sure, and and it's a hard, it's a scary thing for me to think about the idea that this might not ever be normal again. I I don't go there in my mind. Yeah, you you were describing before this idea of the post 70 CE reinvention of Judaism, but there's also a story that we have been telling ourselves since the beginning of this pandemic at different times and at different speeds, which is the impermanence of it, a reassurance that we give ourselves, again, depending on which news station you listen to and which doctor you listen to, uh, you might have more certainty about how soon this is going to be over or not. Um, but the the prognostication is some sort of a return as opposed to an entirely one directional trajectory. Um, but that's very Jewish, too, because they still prayed about going back to Zion when they were sitting on the on the banks of the rivers of Babylon. It's so so I think we're all we're all pining for kind of that reset to be a return that is fairly recognizable. Or I'll speak for myself. I, yeah. I, I think there's been great reinvention, extraordinary reinvention in the Jewish community and, and, and probably in every religious community. I just know because of my journalistic pursuit that that I've been, you know, kind of trolling. That sounds negative. But, you know, 
shadowing all of these services all over the map and how wonderful it is to be able to dip in um, to different cities and see what, what different clergy leads are doing and, and how, and also all the learning, my God, the explosion of Jewish learning online. And, and because I moderate conversations, I'm seeing how many show up, you know, and I interviewed Yehuda Kurtzer about his new book with Claire Sufren. I mean, you know, the hundreds might even been more that, that show up. I'm not sure if we were in person, that many people would have come. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I interviewed the, the leading women of Schitzel. There were thousands of people showed up for that at the Stryker Center. And, you know, that kind of gathering has not, would not have been possible in person, but, but I would give that up. I would give up the numbers to be back, to be back live. How has this changed your appreciation of some of these things that you've wound up interviewing people about of the arts, you know, you're mentioning Stissel and TV. How has it changed your consumption of some of these um, digital media and other pieces of the world? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't as much of an Instagrammer before this, but now I take that deep, you know, it's my husband, Dave says, oh, you're going down the rabbit hole again, you know, and I'll look at, you know, Michael alone, or I think it's Michal Ohlone who played, you know, uh, um, Akiva and Schistel. And, you know, he's on Instagram and I see that they're on set shooting the third season. So then I'm sort of, you know, linked to Netta Riskin who played his, his sister Gitty. And like next thing you know, I've lost an hour of my life. Um, and similarly with some of these seminars and conversations, you know, I mean, Stryker's doing them and the JCC in New York is doing them. And Federation is offering them and AJC is offering them. I mean, we all know how much there is. And, you know, I'm, you know, I am kind of a sucker for content because it energizes me and it keeps my mind worrying. And, um, and I, you know, it, it makes me feel in a way like I'm still, I'm still connected. And when, when I, when I turn off those, those seminars or those live streams or turn off my Instagram, I, I kind of kick myself and say, you know, you're deluding yourself. <laughs> this is, you know, there is, this is not a two way street, but at the same time, you know, I interviewed um, Natalie Portman a couple of weeks ago and, you know, there were maybe 7,000 people who signed on for that. And, Yes, she's a big star, but she's also a big Jew. You know, she's she's somebody we we hold up, even whether someone agrees with her on everything or not. She's she's one of those people. Like when I was reporting Stars of David, you know, we have all always turned to our high achievers and kind of uh, taken a certain pride in them. And just to be able to sit with her and know that she's in her, you know, she's sitting in her kid's room and I'm sitting in my kitchen. And there's, there's something just... Um, more personal about it all right now. And, and I don't take that for granted in the least. And then the more powerful conversations, you know, listening to, to Mika Goodman, who is in Israel talking about, you know, really hard stuff about whether there's going to be, you know, peace or no peace again. But I get to do that. I get to go to Israel and, and do that because I'm home and I have the time and he has the time. I mean, these are things that I hope last because, um, they have changed the game in a way that aren't completely enriching. You know, Abby, this this feels very audacious to diagnose or say, but I'm going to say it anyway. You do Uh-oh. strike, you do, yeah, it's a thing for me. But it's a good thing I can edit this afterwards if I feel like editing it out. Um, uh, you do strike me as a sucker for content. It was the phrase that you used. You you do strike me as a sucker for content in the most gorgeous 
Jewish way in terms of a JCC Jew and something that seems like a a wonderful and beautiful Jewish value tension for you is that contrast between that um when I say JCC Jew I mean in a in a totally classic 92nd Street Y way that bottomless content in the digital age allows for versus the utter surprise you find in yourself being drawn to Central so much so that you agreed to a three-year presidency, you know, and the tension between wanting the intimacy of a community where people know you and they're your gang, right? You said like, they're your gang, they're your people, and your rabbi actually knows you and the intimacy of that community. But also, again, just a total value tension there that you just dig the bottomless, almost Talmudic, uh, endless global possibilities of what Judaism can be when it exists in this infinite content universe. And uh, if those two things can continue to exist in those two poles uh, at the same time in that tension, um, maybe maybe you have a chance of 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 having like the Judaism of your dreams. <laughs> well, it's very rabbinic of you and, and very astute. I haven't thought of those two poles, but it's very true. And, you know, I think one of the things I discovered in me, because I'm late to it, I'm, I'm still giddy about it, is just how endlessly interesting all of this is. And so whether I'm lucky enough to be studying as I have been with Yehuda Kurtzer or an Ellie Comfort or a Shai Held, and then can go and watch um, e- an e-car service with Sharon Browse. Uh, I mean, you know, or, and then listen to an AJC conversation about anti-Semitism or go on ADL's, you know, gala, which, you know, and, and see the conversations that are so hard right now about white supremacy and intersectionality and all these things. You know, I guess it's just that I, these conversations, the hardest ones, and they are, they are the hardest ones, are alive to me. And and it's the things that just make your brain, your brain bend and kind of word that I think make me feel like I get it. I get why people have stayed in this thing and read the same books again over and over and over again. Like for those who say, you know, how, how redundant is this tradition? You know, eight days of Sukkot, eight days of Hanukkah and the same Torah and two seders. Why do you have to do two seders? I mean, there's so much repetition that we do. And here we are again, back at Passover. But we, you know, for me, it's like, it's what is Passover going to be this year? It is the, 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 the kind of excitement of how this thing changes, depending on where you are in, in your life and in the world. And, and even at the hardest moments of loss and of sickness and of struggle and depression um, that I've seen in the people I love or gone through in my own family, I just see that like Judaism meets you where you are. And so, yeah, I think that, and at the same time, I, and it's not like central is the small thing and all the learning is the big thing. I think the more lasting thing in a way is your family, your Jewish family, right? Who knows you and cares and knows if you're home, stuck, sick, that, you know, the way that central immediately had, were deploying all who wanted to check in on those who were homebound. So many synagogues did that, but like, that's the real stuff and not necessarily, you know, parsing a page of Talmud every day. 
Um, but like, how do we show up for each other when we're not related? Um, I mean, we're Jewishly related. That's very powerful for me too. Yeah, it's a place to deploy the learning too. And you, as you put it, to show up, to actually show up for one another and to turn off that outside universe. I think it's apt that you describe that it's showing up at six o'clock and turning off your phone. I think even and especially if it's not a halachic act, because what you're describing is so artfully in contrast with going down that rabbit hole. You know, it, it really is turning off the bottomless content and turning off the Instagram feed and saying, I'm present uh, and I'm present to this ritual in this moment. And um, I could be watching several different synagogue services right now, but I'm sitting I'm sitting right here and focused right here, which which kind of leads me to um, to the ultimate question of of this series that I'm engaged in right now, which is, is there, is there a return for you? Is there a craving for you of a return? You kind of touched on this before, but is there, is there a return to what was before? Do you picture the return for you to something that, um, that existed pre pandemic or are you craving as something new and different when things open back up? I mean, I'm certainly, I have this sort of this picture, this snapshot of what it would be like to walk into era of Rosh Hashanah again. I don't think it'll be this fall, but you know, you're God willing the fallen one and, and just seeing everyone again, you know, that is our one, you know, we have to have services in multiple locations because of central's 2,600 families. And, and so the fact that, we are spread out in other services as beautiful as it is means we're not, we're not, there isn't one time we're all together except for um, era of Rosh Hashanah when we are all in one place. And just the, you know, I know what it feels like on that evening before all of the, um, these, these holy days begin when we are looking at another year, when we are so completely acutely aware of how lucky we are to be walking in to this services, to have gotten another year, um, in the book of life. Um, I just, I, I yearn for that and I see it and I believe it. What I, I guess I'm not so sure of is that we're ever going to quite be the same for a long time in terms of sort of trusting togetherness. Um, I certainly feel it. it. It's not even contagion. It's just a sense of what could be lurking um, in intimacy and so the fact that it's central, we have a long controversial, you know, debate about swaying, but we sway during the Shekhinyanu. Some people are opposed. Um, I was a president that was for it and swayed. Um, everyone is, it's to each and her own. But even the swaying, like, can we sway anymore? Both metaphorically, it's just in a larger question and the literal one. Like, can we be physically together again the same way and I just I'm not sure about that and I'm not sure even I will feel fully comfortable with that again um, and then I just think in terms of what I've seen because I've reported on a lot of Jewish institutions I don't think it's a bad thing that some have had a reckoning that some have had to reinvent that some have had to 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 merge or talk about merger you know uh, merging I, I think that there's you know part of the of you know, the Jewish story is change. 
And sometimes a lot of these institutions do kind of get stuck in aspic. Um, and that's no judgment. It's understandable. There's, there's boards and there's stakeholders and there's tradition and there's ritual, but sometimes it does need to get shaken up. And if anything has done it, this hat this year has, and, and that's actually energizing to me. And I think, um, something I'm looking forward to, to seeing the change. Hmm. It, it strikes me that you have such a magnetic draw to Rosh Hashanah as a holiday and as a season um, that you talk about that, first of all, you wrote a whole book about the, the holidays, but you also said earlier that it sort of sets off this train, you're right, of, of holidays and the season, it's sort of you open the, the clown car of the season. I love that image. I think it's going to really stick with me. Um, and you... You also uh, you also co-wrote a song with Noah Aronson, and it was all about the call of the shofar and and resetting and how people kind of reset in that season. And there seems to be for you a real gravity to the reset of of a new year. Do you think that there's going to be do you have in mind like a ritual, a moment? Is it the vaccine shot? Is it something? Can you imagine for yourself like a, a ritual reset button? Are you going to blow a shofar for yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I was so bad at blowing the shofar when I did that for my holiday deep dive. I, I never got good at it. My son, my son was much better. You know, it's interesting that when you bring up the song that I wrote with Noah, and I was lucky enough to have um, Rabbi Peter Rubenstein, um, who was the uh, rabbi emeritus, senior rabbi emeritus of Central Synagogue, who is now at the 92nd Street Y, um, had asked us to write something for the holiday. And, you know, it was so, at the time that we did it, which was pre-pandemic, it was so much about that idea of, of, of that we get another chance, that we, we, don't, we don't have to, we have to look hard. At, at the at our past and our mistakes and our missteps, but we also have to really take in the fact that it's not over. That you do get um, not just a, a chance to do things differently, but a chance to. Um, it's not. It, it, it's even more than forgiveness. It's like you you get a blank slate again. It, it doesn't mean you can't. Doesn't, you're not responsible for 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 again the things that you have to atone for and think about. But that is such a powerful idea, and I learned in my holidays book that you know, as you know, there's four chances in our tradition for New Year's. So I think the idea of newness and reset is such a powerful um, thread. But I would say that the, the more powerful thread is the idea that you might not get another year, is the Yom Kippur lessons of you know, why we reenact our death or it's a rehearsal for our death. It's not just that I am you know, someone who's a doomsayer. I don't think I am, but I am very aware of this idea that you might not get another day. That has come through in my Jewish learning in a way that really just wholly changes my perspective on waking up and saying that modani, modani, blessing. And and so when I think it's a long answer to your question, it's it's being able to wake up in the morning and and just have a sense that we've gotten through. And even with all the people we've lost, that it's just the, that we have crossed that Red Sea, that the worst is over, that the enemy isn't right behind us. Um, I just feel like even though death will still be looming each year in these holidays and frankly in the entire year, this, this, this profound gift that you get another 
chance. Um, it's never been as bracing as this year has been that you just really might not. And when I think about all the people who are not going to be there for these high holidays, virtually or in person, it's, I can't get over it. And so I look forward to that morning blessing. I, I look forward to that morning blessing when I feel like I'll just know in my kishkas that it's over. The worst is over. Uh, I, I love that as a lesson that you're offering out. And I hope that my community members who are listening to this can take, um, a meta something from this, which is that I think that so many of us have this, um, cautious, but, but burning optimism that there's going to be something in this high holy day season coming up. That'll be recaptured that we lost so painfully this past year. And I think that there are disappointments that await us still because there are so many disappointments, disappointments in it not feeling like we expect disappointments in the fraught emotional experiences and spiritual experiences ahead of what it means to just sort of hit those reset buttons. And I love what you're saying, which is that there are more, <laughs> there are four chances a year. There's another new year and another new year, another year, new year, four new years a year in the Jewish tradition. And not only that, but every morning is another opportunity for us to just say, well, today's another chance for it to get a little bit better. Thank you, Abby. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the candor and for this deep, deep dive into your life and your incredible um, professional story. Um, thanks for shining light on yourself. Well, I, I meant it when I said I've loved listening to these. I will continue to and I was honored to be part of one, one of them so thank you thanks for listening to this episode of are you coming back do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic reach out to us at hchorney at tbala.org